Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of one of Britain's great trade unions. It's called Unite. And it's also about one of its greatest cities, Liverpool. Over the past few months, you might have glimpsed a story taking shape. One that didn't make the TV bulletins or the front pages. There was the launch of an independent inquiry into financial mismanagement to do with a hotel that Unite, the union, has built in Birmingham. Then a police raid on a London office and a union official subject to a criminal investigation... They kept coming, these stories, all to do with Unite, one of the biggest unions in the country and one of the financial pillars that holds up the Labour Party. But as all of this was going on, one of our reporters was paying attention and they started asking what joins all of these dots together. And it took us somewhere unexpected into the heart of Liverpool and its politics, which have been at the centre of the Labour Party for decades. There's history here between Liverpool and Labour. Back in the 1980s, when a left-wing group called Militant seized control of the politics of Liverpool, it helped set Labour's national reputation. And in the last three years, with a lot less attention paid to it, Liverpool has been in the mire again. A police investigation, Operation Aloft, was launched into building and development contracts in the city. The mayor was arrested, along with a host of council officials and property developers. There was 21 police officers stormed into the house, 7 o'clock in the morning. So 21 police officers, you know, st- stamp and charging through your house. You'd think it was a drug dealer or a gun runner. Now, Unite's problems and Operation Aloft are separate stories, but there's a thread that links them, and that thread is Liverpool. And so the question is, is a city which haunted Labour's reputation for so long after the 1980s about to do the same thing again? It might seem strange to think about a union and a city becoming almost soulmates, but that's the way that they've come to seem to us as we've reported this story. And it's not just an abstract thing. Until quite recently, Unite and Liverpool were important to each other in really practical ways as well. They had close connections. The city and the union liked working with some of the same people. They wanted to do business their way. And they did. 
Liverpool set about building and regenerating its way to prosperity and Unite got closer to real political power in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party than it ever had been before. For a while, they were on a roll. But as we'll see, things took a turn for the worse. I'm Basha Cummings, and this is the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. And I'm handing over to my colleague, Xavier Greenwood, who's going to tell you the story of Unite, the Union, and a £100 million hotel. This podcast is based on dozens of conversations we've had with politicians, trade union officials, and businessmen in Liverpool, Birmingham, London, and across the country in the past few weeks. Many of them didn't want to talk on record, either because of the ongoing police investigation into Liverpool building contracts, or Unite's separate independent inquiry into its hotel. But they all helped us make sense of where our two stories, the stories of Unite and Liverpool, cross over. It starts with that hotel. That's why the union's main decision-making body, the Executive Council, decided to embark on a major project to provide a top-quality service for them. They thought it was going to be cheap. Len McCluskey had been in charge of Unite, with its more than a million members for less than two years, when his Executive Council gathered to discuss a big new development in Birmingham. The decision was taken to build a conference, education and hotel complex in Birmingham, one of our great vibrant cities. It was December 2012, and the union leadership was told the project would cost around £7 million. It would pay for itself in saved conference fees. Unite had found a site in Birmingham and agreed to a price for it. The city council there already had a developer on board who would manage the project. Even then, their plans were ambitious. A 77,000 square foot education and conference centre, a regional office and a 185 room hotel. But then, well, the deal fell through. Sources close to the negotiations told us this was because Unite had insisted on bringing in a company they'd worked with before to manage the project. A firm from Liverpool called Purple Apple Management. Purple Apple couldn't convince the council developer they were up to the job. After a lot of effort, they realised they were not going to persuade us of their abilities. So they went to Birmingham City Council and asked for a different site. There are different accounts of why the deal to build a hotel on this first site in Birmingham fell through. Len McCluskey told us it wasn't because Unite insisted on bringing in a developer from Liverpool and pointed us towards what Unite had said in the past. Unite has argued that the problem was it wanted full ownership of the building and the deal that was on offer wouldn't give them that. The upshot of that deal collapsing was that a project that would have been overseen by an international developer chosen by Birmingham Council was now being overseen by a tiny company from Liverpool. So, Unite found a different site, a stone's throw away, a site where Purple Apple management could work with them. And soon, another company from Liverpool came into view, the Flanagan Group. We'll hear more about them, because they're important to this story. But their builders described in a testimonial as the go-to firm of Unite, and they came on board as the main contractor. 
That's how things stood as building work on the hotel got underway. It was being run by two companies from Liverpool, 100 miles away from central Birmingham. Neither of them had worked before on a project of this size. And even by this point, the project was much more expensive than first imagined. The estimated cost was no longer £7 million, but £57 million. That is, £50 million more than the original cost. No executive council minutes from the time explain the disparity. In May 2016, work on the Birmingham Hotel began in earnest. A few months later, Unite's leadership boasted that the project was moving at a rapid pace. But in truth, it was slow going. There's an online forum for building enthusiasts called Skyscraper City, and they kept a close eye on the hotel, sharing pictures as it progressed. I swear to God, this has had more delays than Brexit. One user joked. And while the project inched its way upwards, it soon shot past even that £57 million estimate. What started being seen by many people inside Unite as Len McCluskey's pet project was in danger of turning into Unite's white elephant. And the Flanagan Group, as the main builders, were at the heart of it. In the early noughties, if you were out on the town in Liverpool and you had some cash to spare, there was a good chance you'd end up in the news bar. It was a who's who of celebrities and pop singers, A-listers and Z-listers, Hollyoak stars, and of course, because this is Liverpool, footballers. The sort of nightclub where scantily clad bar staff deliver magnums of vodka with sparklers in them. Katie Price, Colleen Rooney, Stephen Gerrard, Cheryl Cole, The Killers, they all went there. Even Lady Gaga passed through its doors. It closed in 2014. It's reopening as a Hooters. But for 14 years, it did a roaring trade. You might wonder why I'm telling you about this. Because it seems a long way from a Unite construction project. But Newsbar was run by the firm that built Unite's Birmingham Hotel, the Flanagan Group. And that was used as a platform. We wined and dined people and, you know, would-be clients and that. And we showed them what we can do and that. And it worked. And even though most nightclubs are fairly apolitical, this one was not. You know, I went to the news bar, there were murals of, you know, working class heroes, Spanish Civil War, all that kind of stuff. And they were kind of, kind of, you know, they, they saw themselves as being a kind of authentic working class business. John Egan, a former Labour campaign strategist, remembers the place well. It was very much a front of house. PR initiative of Flanagan Group. It was the flagship of their of their company or the public face of their company to, to a large extent. So what were the Flanagans doing? Putting political murals on the ceilings in a glitzy nightclub full of celebs. It feels like a message. We might have made it, but we don't forget our roots. Intentionally or not, they were declaring themselves as the kind of company that would be perfect for Unite a trade union that represents working-class communities across the country. And the Flanagans' life story supported their case. Paul Flanagan, head of the Flanagan Group, 
has had an extraordinary journey, from absolute poverty to bars, hotels, and multi-million-pound contracts. Hello, my name is Paul Flanagan, and I am the chief exec of the Flanagan Group. The Flanagan Group is a group of businesses that uh, cover leisure, construction, property development, and um, semi-sheltered housing schemes. The mother was was you know a formidable woman, and you know she she had basically brought them up. I think the the father had been run over hadn't he, in a car accident when the, the, they were quite young, so she brought them up and she instilled this kind of virtue of self improvement. Paul Flanagan began his career working in local governments. I started off a long, long time ago. Now, 1979, as a plumbing plumbing and heating engineer with Liverpool City Council. I had an accident. It was a genuine accident. I, I, uh, I, went, I, I fell through a window um, as opposed to going through a door and I wasn't burgling anywhere. He set up a plumbing and heating company, then moved into construction and property. Flanagan Group signs started popping up in the city. Then, in 2000, the Flanagans opened the news bar. That's news with a Z, by the way, because it was in a building called New Zealand House. It kicked off a whole new strand of their business, buying and renovating small hotels and bars. They were a success story for, for the city and a success story, I think, for you know, authentic, indigenous, working class entrepreneurialism that, you know, in Liverpool, it, it needs role models and success stories to kind of validate its, its aspirations. Eventually, the Flanagans got their biggest job on the Unite Hotel in Birmingham. But it was in Liverpool that they slowly made their way, where they forged the connections that would get them in the right rooms with the right people. With Paul Flanagan as the family's frontman. Paul was, was much more gregarious and, and, and much more, I, I think that he was the foreign, the foreign minister on behalf of the, of the Flanagan business. We were having a, an awards ceremony for one of the departments in the council. Lord Story, Mike Story, is a Liberal Democrat who led Liverpool City Council between 1998 and 2005. He still remembers the Flanagan charm. And we were having it at the news bar, and uh, I think the, the Flanagans ran the news bar. And as I arrived, uh, a guy came up and welcomed me and said, we'd like to give you a gold membership card. He was handed to me, and I, I took it. I had no idea what I was being given. I just sort of said, oh, thank you, thank you, and sort of put it in my pocket. Luckily, the awards ceremony started, and I just didn't... You know, got enjoyed the, the the evening, but I was uncomfortable in in that situation, and various approaches were, were made via other people, the Flanagans, uh, who had started doing developments in the city, uh, wanted to meet up, uh, and I chose. I, I kept saying, "Well, it's not a matter for me. It's uh, it should be done through officers." The Flanagans seem to have been on the lookout for an opportunity when they saw one, because after decades of neglect and chaotic local politics, Liverpool was slowly regenerating. And the Lib Dem success in the local council elections in the late 90s had supercharged this vision. Mike Storey was determined to transform the city and bring in billions of pounds of investment. The jewel in the crown of Liverpool was, was the city centre with some, you know, as I said before, some amazing architecture, amazing buildings. And yet it wasn't a tourist destination. So we went out to the private sector and we built what was called Liverpool One, which was at the time was Europe's biggest retail and leisure development. And that took us from like 17th position as a retail destination to the top 
three or four, we built a cruise liner terminal. So cruise liners started coming into the city, 56, 60 cruise liners, uh, and they all disembark and spend the money. We built an arena and convention centre, which actually won a huge number of prizes for uh, uh, an awards. Liverpool was open for business. In 2003, it was told that it would be the European capital of culture. That means thousands of jobs, an astonishing £2 billion of investment and more than a million extra tourists. Throw in a Champions League win in 2005 and Liverpool, at least from the outside, was a city on the up. Its skyline transformed and modernised, a hub for culture and tourism, with a couple of great football teams too. But not everyone was keen to celebrate. According to John Egan, who's been involved in regeneration in Liverpool for decades, some locals, particularly local developers, felt that all this cultural and financial capital, it wasn't trickling down. I think one of the things that happened was there was a kind of a kind of backlash against what had been happening in terms of this kind of renaissance process. You know, particularly people kind of pointing out and saying, well, this is all well and good, but it's all been happening in the city centre. This is all well and good, but it's all being delivered by companies who aren't basically from Liverpool. Or the jobs aren't being given to people who are from Liverpool. Uh, there's been this enormous, great sort of uh, explosion of wealth and prosperity and opportunity. And yet, if you're living in Norris Green or Croxteth or wherever, that's not really, uh, it's, not, it's, it's not reaching you. And that became quite a, a, a powerful message of resentment, certainly from some, some local companies and local companies in the development sector were sort of saying... Including the Flanagans. And I think their concern always was that, in a way, they were outsiders. Mm. They weren't part of the magic circle. Uh, the city was dominated, or the city council was dominated by a kind of professional elite in terms of officers who were probably regarded them uh, and viewed them with a sort of sniffy kind of disdain. Peter Kilfoyle is a former Labour MP in the city who thinks the Flanagans had a point. I think it was run by their mother. And they came to me because they were complaining that they could never get a hearing uh, for a bid for a council contract. And he had a case. You know, it, it was a closed shop with the same old favoured few. Got all the work. Going back to what I said about the tradition, once you're in, you're in, you know. And I took up the case, believe it or not. And then they did get onto the approved contractors list, which I don't know whether I'm to blame for what followed, but um, the next time I saw Paul Flanagan was, he was inviting me, I just bumped into him in the city, to the opening of a, of a nightclub. But the Flanagans, in hindsight, didn't need the Lib Dems because the year that Mike Storey became leader of the city council, another politician emerged on the scene, one who in time would help the Flanagans make it to the top table. A Labour man, a union man. When I took over in 2010, we had boarded up houses on Ed's Lane. Um, you know, we had capital occulty here, so it was like fair coat and no knickers. Parts of, of uh, the city were like war zones. I'm Joe Anderson, ex-mayor of Liverpool, um, currently uh, forced into retirement. Joe Anderson lives in a small semi-detached house, which he shares with his wife Marge and a tiny dog called Blue. A photo of him, his wife and their grandchildren 
holds pride of place in the living room. It's a modest house, but a world away from where he grew up. If you look at my Twitter feed, you'll see a picture of the tenement blocks where I was raised and was born and bred in part of Liverpool called the Dingle um, area, South Liverpool. So the background, six kids, uh, mum and dad. My dad was an alcoholic in the merchant navy. We suffered domestic violence um, when we were kids. Often my dad would end up throwing us out. It was tough, tough upbringing. I was um, uh, somebody that that was uh, part of a family that loved each other, but had very little. You know, often the electricity electricity was turned off, the gas was turned off because my dad had broke into the meters and, you know, we, we, my mum would have to cook by little camping stove. Just out of school, Joe Anderson became a seaman and found his political calling. I think the making of me, within the first few years, I'd visited um, Poland and seen the solidarity uh, strikes there with Lekwawets uh, and uh, seen all of the, the uprising and all of the brutality of a military junta suppressing people. Uh, I'd witnessed that and then I was on a ship that went to South Africa, the whole coast of South Africa for about three months and witnessed apartheid firsthand and, and, you know, watching how black people were being treated. He joined the National Union of Seamen, where Peter Kilfoyle remembers him as a quiet supporter of the Labour militant politicians of the 1980s. He was much younger and he was drafted in as a delegate on what we call the temporary coordinating committee when I was regional organiser for the Labour Party and there were tough times with Millens. And he was just just a young bloke who was rough and ready, seaman, and he disappeared. Next time I meet him he's on the council. And to me he was just not my kind of person, to be honest with you, you know. I was one of the youngest ever conveners in the National Union of Seamen as it was then and on the Executive Council in, in terms of the National Union of Seamen. Peter Kilfoyle recalls someone less impressive. When you when you met Joe when he was a little younger, I mean, you said you met him before he went off to be He was of no account. Yeah, there was no... You didn't get any indication that he would end up where he was? No. I can't even remember him ever speaking. What he did do, he tended to vote with the the people who would have been supporters of Hatton and co. Hatton is Derek Hatton, a former firefighter who was the leading light of militant, left-wing Labour radicals who ran Liverpool in the early 80s. I would just like to say that I'm sure that everyone in this hall has learnt many lessons from this dispute. It's often said that you learn far more in five minutes of struggle than you do in 20 years of reading. In 1985, Militant tried to set an illegal budget in protest at spending cuts made by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government. They brought Liverpool close to bankruptcy, earning them criticism from Labour's national leader, Neil Kinnock. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour council, a Labour council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. Joe Anderson went on to do a bunch of other jobs. He ran a pub for a few years, trained as a social worker. He grafted. And in 1998, he became a city councillor for the area he grew up in. Politics came knocking, in in a sense. In 2003, Joe Anderson became head of the Labour Group in the city. 
He built a reputation as someone who took no prisoners, a canny political operator, but who cared about local people, who was principled. The Flanagans, by the time Joe Anderson was steadily rising to the top, had their eggs in his basket and that of the Labour Party. So if the Labour group was having a function, then they'd buy a table, but they'd buy one at uh, Maria Eagles, Louise Elmans, or, or any of the MPs within Liverpool who had a night they'd buy. Paul Flanagan knew exactly where to focus his efforts. He was always ambitious, always um, entrepreneurial, but always very clear about his, his, his level of political commitment and his political relationships with the city. In 2006, the Flanagans donated £2,000 to a Labour constituency branch in the city. And in January 2009, they donated £6,100 to the National Party. Four months later, Gordon Brown, the Labour Prime Minister, spoke at a private party at the news bar. Standing next to him was Joe Anderson. Can I, can I thank uh, Paul Flanagan for allowing me to come to this great uh, uh, club and uh, to be here this uh, evening. I don't know how long he's going to allow me to stay, but it's a great pleasure to be here. Gordon Brown would be out of power before long, but that was national politics. And in Liverpool, the Flanagans had bet on the best horse. Because a year after the Prime Minister's speech, Joe Anderson became leader of Liverpool City Council. And two years after that he became Liverpool's first ever directly elected mayor. He was now one of the most powerful politicians outside of London. The people of Liverpool have spoken decisively in favour of the Labour Party. We will deliver on our pledges and our promises. The people of this city need new houses, they need jobs and new schools. For many people in Liverpool, This was a moment of hope. Even Mike Storey, whose party had just been kicked out of power, could feel it. So yes, I think initially people thought, oh, here's a a working class man, you know, connections with the sea, a merchant sailor who who is one of us. And that meant a lot. So I think that initially Anderson was seen as somebody who had the position to to help ordinary people. Liverpool developers, who'd felt ignored by the Lib Dems, were also excited. Because Joe Anderson's vision was for Liverpool to build its way to prosperity. Like the Lib Dems, you might say. But he wanted to do it with locals. I promised the electorate that we'd build more houses, schools, we would create more jobs, we would grow the economy and that we would make sure that local labour and local companies were able to take advantage of the regeneration. It was, on the face of it, an admirable aim. The makeup of the council, the accents, the backgrounds began to change. Refreshingly for some. Although for others, it had its downsides. From an outsider perspective, under the Joe era, the persona of city council became much, much more scouse. It, it seemed to kind of settle into a view of the city that kind of resonated with that sort of closed self-help against the world, looking after our own. It, it was a comfort zone in which that kind of transactional politics and that kind of transactional approach towards 
who we want to work with, who we trust, who we like, who we think can do we can do business with. It, it became a kind of it became a sort of the genre or the aesthetic for the way that the city did its business. Paul Flanagan, who twelve years earlier found it difficult to get a meeting with the Lib Dems, suddenly had a direct line to the mayor's office. Someone who worked closely with Joe Anson told us about the eight AM calls they had to field from Paul Flanagan. And and would you know when you were mayor would Paul kind of call the office quite a lot? Um wouldn't say a lot. Um I wouldn't say a lot. I w- w- not not that I recall. I wouldn't answer the phones anyway or wouldn't maybe get to know. Sometimes if I'd come in, somebody might might say, you know, Paul has asked, can you give him a ring or something or whatever. Paul Flanagan's access to the mayor came on the back of a long friendship. I, and I've known Paul about 15, 20 years, maybe. Not a great friend, but a friend, a Labour Party supporter. He used to go to functions, Labour Party functions, that most of the MPs had. Um, his company would have a dinner table or, or, or whatever. So I met him and I had you know, lots of conversations with him about, about Labour and about things that were going on in the city, especially even when, when we took control. They first met on a winter's day, leaves on the ground in a car park. It was in the car park at the back of the old municipal buildings which was facing the Sir Thomas Hotel. So he was either parking in the Thomas Hotel, getting in his car or whatever, when uh, he bumped into him and he said, Joe, you know, so I looked at him and said, you OK, mate? Liverpool thing, you OK, mate? And the schmoozing began immediately. Yeah, um, listen, he's just doing a good job, you know, and whatever, and, and he was critical of... of, of uh, the Lib Dems and stuff, whatever, and that's how the conversation lasted about 10 minutes or something in, 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 in the car park. A friendship blossomed, and Joe Anderson would often have a drink with Paul Flanagan inside the Flanagan Hotel near where they first met. Paul used to have, he used to meet with a group of people. I think they called themselves the Poet Society or something like that. I'd, I'd go, go in there around about four o'clock, you know, half past four, because I you know, tried to get away early. I'd stay and have a few drinks and leave about half past six, seven o'clock. Often, Paul, if I was with other people, would come and sit, have a, have a chat for that 20 minute, half an hour. On other occasions, I'd walk over to where they were sitting in, in the venue and, and, and sit down, have a chat, introduce to different people. And, and you know, taste this port, because I used to like have a little glass of port, taste this port, or, or whatever. That's how it went, but it was never... It was never planned, you know, because you said, was it regular? Well, it was it was frequent, you know. It was every week, every other week or whatever. And then, you know, if if I went like two, three weeks on, on the run, you, you know, I, I might have a chat with Paul every time I was there. Joe Anderson, an Everton fan, even went to the Flanagan's box at Liverpool Football Club. Although... We got into a strange war of words when I called this a box. I went to a uh, a match there. It's not a box. It's a uh, well, yeah. I suppose you could call it a box. It's their <laughs> facility. It's their facility. Like, yeah, I've had a, I've had a meal there. When was the last time you talked to Paul? Um, 
about last week, early last week. Joe Anderson says that this friendship did in factor into any work the Flanagan Group would get with the Liverpool City Council. Any work that was given to the Flanagan Group by Liverpool City Council had gone through a proper process of tendering and stuff and bids and things and, and you know, no decisions were made by me and often I wouldn't know whether they had. But the Flanagan Group did do well under Joe Anderson. There's one particular arrangement I'm going to start with. Because, to me, it seems to typify the sort of deals going on in Liverpool under Joe Anderson's leadership. It's to do with car parks. But it sounds much grander because it was part of a scheme called the Beautiful Ideas Company. Since 2011, the Flanagan Group had been running a community car park as part of a wider council-led scheme to improve North Liverpool, tackling issues with street parking and car crime. It was near the Everton and Liverpool football stadiums, and it was heaving on match days. At £10 a car, cash in hand, it made a lot of money. The car park raised £186,000 in its first three years. In 2014, the council set up the Beautiful Ideas Company to funnel money from the car park into projects with a social purpose the so-called beautiful idea. But the idea was to create a company that would use the generation of car parking in the North City, in Anfield, and draw that money in and then reinvest that into the Anfield community. It sounds great, doesn't it? Take the hundreds of thousands of pounds already raised and pump it back into the area. It even got additional funding, some £375,000 from the government's cabinet office. But Steve Radford, a Liberal councillor, was one of many people asking where that money was actually being reinvested. That was a concept, and it was a concept I'm certainly not uncomfortable with. What clearly has raised a lot of angst is large numbers of people in Anfield, who you've got to remember is a neighbouring community to mine, I question, where's the money gone? Steve only started getting answers a few weeks ago, when the council finally released their internal audits of beautiful ideas. My producer, Gemma, has been through them to try and work out what was going on. So I'm going to share with you some of the things that struck me as I was reading through the audit of the Beautiful Ideas Company, because some of them are a little bit unusual and they're also very convoluted. Here's the first thing that struck me. Paul Flanagan's brother Julian was a director on the Beautiful Ideas Company, as was a Labour councillor. And two other Labour councillors were advisors to the board and they were present when investment decisions were being made. And that might not sound like too much of a problem, except for the fact of who was getting the investment. So you go a little bit further into the report and what it shows you is that the plan for distributing this investment from the car parks was that companies seeking a chunk of money would have to make a Dragon's Den-style pitch to the Beautiful Ideas board. That's to Julian Flanagan, that's to the Labour councillor and to others. But according to these audits, at least 10 of the 17 investments went to organisations that either had business or personal relationships to board members 
or staff working for Beautiful Ideas. Just to give you a concrete example of where these investments were going, Beautiful Ideas indirectly paid £20,000 to a community interest company to hire a new member of staff for a cultural space in a local park. Now that job went to a Labour councillor. That Labour councillor was also the daughter of one of the councillors advising the Beautiful Ideas board. And there's one more thing that the audits reveal that I think is really illuminating about all of this. There's one from 2015 that shows that the Flanagan Group had by that stage received over £250,000 through the car park scheme. But the auditors, the council auditors, couldn't access the bank account where the money was held. Apparently the person with the password was off work and, strangely, nobody thought to pursue it. It really suggesting that we couldn't look at the accounts but we're comfortable with them because someone gone sick and nobody knew the password for an account that's supposed to hold a revenue base of a quarter million pounds. I just think it's stretching credulity. John Egan, who sat on the Beautiful Ideas Board for a couple of meetings, defended the Flanagan's role in the company. I think that they were doing this honourably and honestly, and the money was properly... The accountancy and the transparency was was, was you know, shoddy and slips, slapdash, but that was the responsibility of Beautiful Ideas Company. And ultimately, the council. It didn't look good for Joe Anderson. Little accountability and traceability, councillors involved, all under his watch. Although, he wouldn't say that. Look, I'll be absolutely clear here that the mayor cannot see everything. The mayor can't watch minutiae of everything. You've got social services departments, you've got education departments, regeneration departments, you know, whole host of different things going on, meetings coming out your ears with government, with other people. You can't see, that's why you need a good team, good cabinet. Since the release of the audits, Liverpool's current mayor has launched an investigation which will assess the behaviour of five Liverpool councillors in relation to the Beautiful Ideas Company. There are other times where the Flanagans seem to have benefited from Joe Anderson's mayorship. In 2016, they were given nine acres of council land, the size of five football pitches, for free. The Liverpool Echo found they sold a piece of land they had bought off the council for a pound for £1.6 million. They were able to sell a different piece of land they'd also got for a pound for 900,000. Well, yeah, well, I don't know how the legals work on, on, on why they got land for, for a pound. But, yeah, you know, that, that's what happens sometimes. You know, you, you, you might grant a, a company three years' business rates free in order them to uh, afford to be able to uh, refurbish something. That, that means it's going to take them a huge amount of money. We've done it, I've done it, where we've then brought in business rates and created jobs. But sometimes you have to come up with innovative ways and solutions to, to, to get things moving. The £1 sites were given to the Flanagans against legal advice, and despite the fact that the council had higher bids for some of the sites, totalling over £1 million. Joe Anderson insists he did nothing wrong. I can guarantee you that the reports that gave this acres of land, nine acres of land that you've just mentioned or whatever, would have gone through proper regeneration, 
would have gone through cabinets, would have gone through the full council meetings, and also would have been and could have been halted by the chief executive, the city solicitor, or the financial director, you know, those statutory officers. We've been told that many of the deals were in fact put not to the city council solicitor, but to private solicitors, and that the deals would change without being put back in front of council members. Remember at the start of this story, where I said that for a time Liverpool and Unite, the trade union, were soulmates? One of the reasons I found it interesting is that Unite isn't based in Liverpool. Its headquarters are in London. It seems the main reason Liverpool and Unite are close are the people involved. Well, at the same time that Liverpool was building and building, so too was Unite. And like in Liverpool, the Flanagan Group were beneficiaries. Just after Len McCluskey became the Unite boss in 2011, the Flanagans did work in Unite redevelopments in Stoke, Swansea and Liverpool. The building the Flanagans refurbished in Liverpool, Unite's northwest office, was described by some local politicians as the Little Kremlin, playing up to its image as a hotbed of left-wing activity. Len McCluskey clearly had an affection for the Flanagans. In 2014, he came to their Liverpool hotel, where Joe Anderson would have a drink, to unveil the political paintings that used to hang in the news bar. At the event, Len McCluskey reportedly described the Flanagans as a working-class family who have made good and never forgotten their roots. Len McCluskey, like the Flanagans, had a humble upbringing in a Liverpool terraced house with no toilet or bathroom. This is my story. The story of a class fighter, a workers' representative. From the quaysides of the Liverpool docks to number 10 Downing Street. I'm proud to have fought for my class every step of the way. He was a union shop steward on the Liverpool docks at just 19. But by the time he came to the Flanagan's Hotel in November 2014, he was probably the most powerful trade union official in the country. Labour's then leader, Ed Miliband, had only been elected with the support of the unions. Back then there was possibly no better way to show your working-class credentials than to be pictured with Len McCluskey. And Paul Flanagan, when Len McCluskey came to his bar, got just that. Or so says John Egan. It, it suddenly became very obvious that he was being paraded out as being one of their influential friends. After Len McCluskey came to their bar, the Flanagan's relationship with Unite, mediated through Liverpool, continued to flourish. In 2015, the Flanagans moved into a building on the Liverpool waterfront that used to belong to the Transport and General Workers' Union, the TNG, which had merged with another union a few years earlier to become Unite. Purple Apple Management, the Liverpool company on the Birmingham Hotel, were the agents when the building was on sale. The Flanagans made it into their new head office. Then, of course, the Flanagans got the job on the Birmingham project. Joe Anderson was close to the person running Purple Apple Management at the time the hotel was being built. I, 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 knew, I knew Mike. I knew Mike very well. Mike was, again, was a good friend of mine. And I go to match with Mike. Yeah, Mike's a good friend, still is. A health and safety contract 
went to a company run by Joe Anderson's son. It's a morass of connections, and it's hard to parse coincidence from convenience from cronyism, especially when Liverpool is a small city. But what we can say is that the Flanagan Group became a much richer company because of the Birmingham Hotel. In 2013, the Flanagan Group was turning over just £8 million. By 2017, when the hotel was underway, it was turning over £17 million. By 2018, £27 million. And by 2019, £38 million. Tortoise asked Unite and the Flanagan Group to provide any evidence of a competitive tendering process for the contracts won by the Flanagan Group, to point us to any published adverts for the tender, to list any other contractors that submitted bids. Unite said they didn't want to comment until they had completed their own inquiry into the cost of the hotel. The Flanagan Group did not respond to our requests for comments. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Tommy from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Senior business leaders in the UK are keen to harness AI, but there's a complex regulatory maze emerging globally. The OECD, a group of the world's richest countries, which includes the UK, has adopted a new set of principles to ensure that AI operates in a way that's safe, fair and trustworthy. The principles are wide-ranging, but in essence calls for AI systems to be designed in a way that respects the rule of law and human rights, and says there should be transparency around their use. By embracing the core principles of responsible innovation, UK business leaders can better explore sector-specific opportunities and emerging trends without compromising on citizens' trust. Find out more at ey.ai. It's in 2019 that things in Liverpool took a turn for the worse. In March, Paul Flanagan and Joe Anson went to a local Labour fundraiser in a Liverpool park. They watched Len McCluskey speak, defending the Labour Party against charges of anti-Semitism. It seems like a different era now. Because later that year, Merseyside police began to arrest people in Liverpool. And not just anyone. 
property developers, council officials. By the end of 2020, they'd arrested 11 people as part of Operation Aloft, a major police investigation they launched into building and development contracts in the city. The people arrested included two developers, five council officials, former council officials and aides, and the family member of a council official. Currently, no one has been charged and there is no connection between Operation Aloft and Unite Hotel in Birmingham. We know who the people arrested are. There was another woman arrested a couple of weeks ago, but for legal reasons, we can't report their names. What we can say is that on the 4th of December 2020, Joe Anderson became one of them. Two weeks after Labour selected him to go for a third term as mayor, he was woken up at dawn. Margaret got up about 20 past six, whatever, and she'd gone out with the dog. And as she was coming back in with the dog behind her, um, there was 21 police officers stormed into the house. Seven o'clock in the morning. So 21 police officers, you know, stamp and charging through your house. You'd think it was a drug dealer or a gun runner. You know, they'd have asked me to come and speak to them, but they're gone. You know, she was panicking, the wife, panicking. You know, what's, what's going on? Joe Anderson was arrested, at home, on suspicion of conspiracy to commit bribery and witness intimidation. He has never been charged and denies wrongdoing. He still remains under investigation. After he was arrested, things moved quickly. Joe Anderson sent a message to the public. He's released a statement saying, I've always done what I believe is best for the city uh, and I'm taking the following action with those best intentions uh, in mind. Uh, He says he's stepping away from decision-making within the council through a period of unpaid leave until the police make clear their intentions. On the 17th of December, the Conservative government appointed Max Caller, someone who's led large London boroughs, to carry out an independent inspection of the council. Three months later, he gave his findings. It is a damning report. Then Secretary of State for Local Government, Robert Jenrick, read out some of the key lines in the House of Commons. It paints a deeply concerning picture of mismanagement, the breakdown of scrutiny and accountability, a dysfunctional culture putting the spending of public funds at risk and undermining the city's economic development. An overall environment of intimidation described as one in which the only way to survive was to do what was requested without asking too many questions or applying normal professional standards. I rebut everything Callas says. Callas a liar. You're listening, Mr Callas, you're a liar. He says in his report that only companies in Liverpool with the Liverpool postcode got jobs. That's a lie. We put Joe Anderson's assertions to Max Keller, who says he stands by everything he wrote in the report. He says that he's heard all these claims before from Joe Anderson and that they didn't come much ice with the Labour Party or with Robert Jenrick. Liverpool's ultimate humiliation came when the Conservative government intervened to help run the Labour Council. This package is centred on putting in place commissioners who I will appoint to exercise certain and limited functions of the council as required for a minimum of three years. It was in this period, 2019 to 2021, that things took a turn in Unite's story too. Unite had long since left its £7 million estimate for its hotel in the dust. But not only that, 
it blasted past its revised £57 million estimate. Leaked accounts show that by the end of 2019, they'd spend £74 million on the project. The media start to take interest, as do Unite candidates vying to replace Len McCluskey. By the start of 2021, when costs had reached £98 million, Len McCluskey had had enough. He called a special meeting of Unite's Executive Council, where he denounced the hostile media who had sought to undermine and smear the trade union. He explained that the cost increase was primarily down to implementing a union protocol, requiring that only directly employed workers on national pay rates and with union membership work on the site. He said that the world-class Birmingham Hotel Conference and Education Centre is a reflection of this union's sound management of its finances. At the same meeting, according to an audio recording obtained by The Times, he told Unite's executive council he had no connection whatsoever with Joe Anderson, who had been arrested a month earlier. So Len McCluskey came up to see the school site with me and also looked at the flyover situation there as well around the, the site. I'd spoke at a couple of conferences that he was at, I'd spoke at a couple of rallies that he was at. I'd met him at a Labour Party conference at the Pullman Hotel. Uh, had a pint with him, only one pint. Uh, in fact, mine was a glass. Uh, <laughs> but a drink with him. Len supported me in my going for the third term to be mayor again. And would you consider Len McCluskey a friend? I'd, I'd say he was, yeah, I'd say he was a friend, yeah. I wouldn't say that, that you know, I have, I, I mean, I haven't spoke to the man for a, a few years, um, over two years. In April 2021, the hotel in Birmingham finally opened. Unite is a union that invests in its members. Len McCluskey hailed it as a triumph. This project is now completed and it stands as a tribute to the values of this union. He essentially tells the membership that this hotel, this conference centre, is worth it. A few months after the Unite Hotel was opened, Len McCluskey stepped down as General Secretary of the Trade Union. He was replaced by Sharon Graham. And Unite, under new leadership, began to wonder if the hotel was worth it. And with that, the Liverpool ties began to fray. We've been able to track how things have changed by finding lines deep in the weeds of Unite's published records. They are so hidden that even Unite's most eagle-eyed critics hadn't spotted them. We can see that soon after becoming General Secretary, Sharon Graham suspended Purple Apple Management as Unite's property managers. In October 2021, she took a building in Bradford away from the Flanagan Group. Unite said there would be a new tender to refurbish the office. In December 2021, Sharon Graham also took an old pub back from the Flanagans. The pub was next to the Birmingham Hotel and was supposed to be refurbished as part of the development. Unite said that their in-house team, not the Flanagans, were dealing with any remaining defects in the hotel itself. And most importantly, Sharon Graham commissioned two independent valuations into the Birmingham projects. In February, she gave Unite officials the news. The first valuation came in at £27 million, the second at £29 million, leaving a shortfall of tens of millions of pounds. 
Sharon Graham then appointed Martin Bowdry, a top barrister specialising in construction disputes, to lead an inquiry into the discrepancy in costs. He's due to report back any day now. And I've discovered that the costs of the hotel haven't stood still. In January 2021, remember, the bill stood at £98 million. But in a meeting of Unite's leadership in June this year, officials were given an updated figure for the Birmingham project. It was shared verbally, I've been told. And it was £112.3 million. That's over £80 million more than the valuation said it was worth. Unite wouldn't confirm the figure when we put it to them. £112 million is nearly £100 for every Unite member, some of the lowest paid workers in the country, for a hotel at which, according to the hotel itself, members don't even get a discount. So that's where we are. The UK's second largest trade union has been forced to open an inquiry into its own spending on a hotel after it appears to have wasted tens of millions of pounds of his members' money. A major hotel contract went to a company run by someone close to Len McCluskey, a company which has been caught up in a separate corruption scandal in Liverpool. Another contract went to the son of a former mayor, who has also been caught up in that scandal, a mayor who considers Len McCluskey a friend. It's tempting to look at all this and pass it off as unsavoury, but maybe not a grade-A story. A tale about a regional city cutting corners and looking after its own. And a union which, as I said at the beginning, doesn't matter as much as unions used to. I think that would be a mistake. Just look at the power Unite still has. It's not just the money it shovels across to the Labour Party. £3 million ahead of the last general election and more than £1 million each year in the affiliation fees that link the union to the party. But it's also the energy it puts into election campaigns, like the phone banks it runs to get out the votes. Talk to anybody in the Labour Party and they'll tell you how important those things are. For all the agonising about the relationship between Labour and the trade unions, Unite is still part of the warp and weft of -of left-of-centre politics in this country a huge part of it. Unlike on the right of British politics, there hasn't been much scrutiny of whether Unite is well enough run and financially accountable enough to pass the equivalent of a fit and proper persons test. Conservative donors have come under the microscope over the past couple of years, of course, and they haven't come out to the examination well. But here's a union which, by its own admission, has serious questions to answer about its finances, which has spent a fortune on a hotel and never successfully explained how. Unite's potential to damage Labour is there for all to see. What's happened in Liverpool could do the same. Clean politics and clean money will count for something in the next election. And both Unite and Liverpool could muddy Labour's reputation. There is no indication of any criminal wrongdoing in the Birmingham Hotel project. There is no indication that the Flanagan Group was at fault for the enormous rise in costs around the hotel development. And there is no connection between the development and any of the property or land deals being investigated under Operation Aloft. Joe Anderson has not been charged and denies any wrongdoing. He remains under investigation. 
Unai told us that Sharon Graham established an independent inquiry in order to review the costs incurred in the union's Birmingham development and to address the questions of how and why those costs were incurred. Unite added that in Sharon Graham's election campaign, she had pledged to do this if issues arose that justified such an inquiry. Unite said they would make public comments when the independent inquiry reports. They said they cannot comment on matters within the scope of the inquiry while it remains ongoing. We send Len McCluskey a series of questions about his relationship with Paul Flanagan. He described the questions we posed as false, misleading and inaccurate. We also asked him some questions about Unite, including the process by which the Flanagan Group was awarded the contract for the Birmingham Hotel. He said we should direct these questions to Unite. He added that the questions had been publicly answered before and that any good journalism would be able to locate Unite's answers through even the most cursory of investigation. The Flanagan Group did not respond to our request to comment. This story was written and reported by me, Xavier Greenwood and Gemma Newby. The producer is Gemma Newby. The executive producers are Kerry Thomas and David Taylor. Sound design is by Sam Batha. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, then do give us a review or give us a follow on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. And if you'd like to get more of our journalism, including newsletters and tickets to live events, you can join Tortoise. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 5-0 for a discount. Thank you. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast, and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably, and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next week.